Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Chris Mercer, the co-founder of Measurement Marketing and a sought-after measurement marketing expert. On this episode, Mercer and I discuss Measurement Marketing Academy, how to keep up with the growing number of marketing channels, speed reading, and much more. Here's our interview now. Mercer, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure, Alex. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, we're amped to have you. So first off, buddy, why don't you tell me just a little bit or as much as you'd like about measurementmarketing.io. I love that. Tell us a little or a lot. Our job, yeah, my name is obviously Chris Mercer. I'm the co-founder of a company called measurementmarketing.io, as you as you mentioned. And really, we're there to help agencies, marketers, marketing teams, companies try to figure out that elusive question that I, I think that was asked like a hundred years ago where they said something like half my advertising works. I'm just not sure which half, right? And then ever since then, everyone's been trying to figure out how to measure stuff so they can answer that. And that's kind of what we do. So we help marketers that are doing, especially on the digital world, right? E-commerce, all that sort of stuff that are selling things online to try to figure out what's working, what's not. Should I turn up the money on that Facebook campaign? Should I send more emails? Like those sort of questions. No, that's great because that covers a lot of what we're going to talk about in terms of especially kind of that omni-channel marketing. So to my knowledge, part of your platform is this academy. That's only one part, but it feels like kind of a foundational part of what measurement marketing does is this academy that people can sign up for to learn some marketing skills. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to just elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Like when we started, we actually started as an agency that was done for you. It's actually kind of good, a little entrepreneurial lesson, because I think we started as an agency who would set up measurement for other people. So, you know, you pay us, we'd handle your Google analytics, tag manager, looker studio reporting, you know, all the sort of stuff that went together so that you could figure out what's working, what's not, and what actions you can take to make better results happen. Right. So we started doing that. And at a certain point, people are going to say, well, listen, that's too much. Can you create a course? Right. Like that's sort of what happened. And we start hearing that a lot. Not that uh, we, we have plenty of done for you clients. That was that was, it wasn't the price point, but just not everybody can afford that. So we created the courses, and that's what grew into the Measurement Marketing Academy, which is the academy that you're referencing. So there is a DIY. It's kind of like for those people who don't have necessarily the money to hire somebody else to come on and do this for them full time, but they can they have the time and they and they want to be able to learn the information. So we have the membership platform that does that, and we still have obviously the done for you stuff as well, but. I am personally just flat out like I love teaching, love it. It is the thing that fuels me the most of turning on people's brains, right? And just having those light bulb moments for them. I love being a part of that process. So I am a firm believer in having skills like this in house. So I always try to encourage people to learn this skill rather than hiring somebody, whether it's us or somebody else. I always encourage them, learn these skills because if you have the skills in house, you're going to be able to get more from them. So I like the academy for that reason. Yeah. And that really appeals to kind of this surge of masterclass and this ability for people to learn something, whether they they just want to, you know, people just like learning a new skill, whether they, you know, want it to be their bread and butter, their main source of income, or they want some sort of addendum or addition to their skill set. You know, I've always been akin to jack of all trades, master of none. I'm okay with that. That's just kind of the way I am. I'd rather be able to be Swiss army knife than a really good meat cleaver. But I'll tell you, man, that, that makes you a good strategist too. Because while you don't, you might not know the tactical tools of all the different nuances of all the, what the tools can do because you know so much about. So let's say so little about so much, you can see a strategy that unites them all. Whereas other people who only specialize in a certain tool, they can't create strategy. Right. So I, I think that's the long winded way of saying like there's a place for everybody. 
like that. And I, and I think there's a lot of people who hear that sometimes and say, but I shouldn't be that jack of all trades. I should be the person who's specialized in everything. And it's like, well, maybe if that appeals to you, great. But if it doesn't, the world's a big spot in a big place. We have people can fit in different areas and, and it allows you, it makes you a better strategist, I think in a lot of ways, because you're not tying yourself up with knowing all the nuances of all these different tools. Well, that's a very positive way of looking at it too. And I like that on honestly though, because just to go off on this tangent and walk down this lane with you, I think it's a, a major asset in terms terms of being able to learn the skill of adaptability and compatibility. Strategy is a good word for it. You learn other stuff like, uh, you know, communication skills and, and being able to understand your own flaws, weaknesses, and strengths at the same time. You know, the best thing that you could do, from what I heard, the best thing someone can do with, in a business and the smartest thing that they can do is surround themselves with people who are smarter than them, you know? And I think there's a lot of value in that. And, and that kind of leads me to my next question in terms of how to do that. So in your opinion, Mercer, how do you think a company should determine whether they should learn marketing skills themselves and handle that department themselves or when they should outsource their marketing duties. So you offer both services. How do you determine if a company should do one or the other? Or how do they determine that? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, specifically like in our case, we handle the measurement. So we don't do like the marketing. We don't do the page builds and the traffic and all of that. But I think the formula is the same. Like the answer is the same regardless of if you're looking for a vendor for anything, whether it's SEO, graphic design, like whatever the thing is, how do you know, right? So the way that I look at this is, is, and this is what I would, I literally tell our, our, you know, students and clients when we're on uh, talking to them in the beginning, if they have the time, they have the muscle on their team and that resource, right? Whoever it is, if they have the time, then they just need training. And that's where I would say that's where you invest in training because they have the time, right? And you got the muscle already on your team. And you already have that resource. Then I would invest in training, right? Assuming that there's, there's funds for that because it makes them a better player of the game. You're improving their skills and obviously they have the time. So they're not doing anything anyway. So why not train them so they can get more done, right? So that's, that's the one angle. Now, if let's say you're an individual owner, solopreneur, you threw up a Shopify store and it's what we call the curse of a good offer, but it's like when it works right away is the curse of a good offer because you don't think about measurement. When you're making money. In fact, a lot of times people start going the most poisonous thought I think that happens in a marketer's brain is when they say, I don't care how it's working as long as it keeps working, right? I don't care as long as we keep making money. That's what they keep thinking. But they very much will care when things break. But the problem is when things break, because you didn't follow with measurement, now you don't know how things are working. Now you don't know what to fix, right? So you have this problem. So to avoid that in the beginning, you are busy. You are trying out a lot of stuff and maybe you don't have the time to be a specialist in this, to actually have proper measurement or marketing or graphic design, whatever that thing is you're trying to hire for. At that point, that's when you say, listen, I can't fulfill this role that our organization needs. Therefore, I need to fulfill it some other way. Sometimes that's going to be with a vendor. Like in our case with measurement, it might be with us as a vendor. Sometimes that's going to be a platform, right? Or software, right? Um, like AI is fulfilling a lot of those roles right now. People that used to hire copywriters are now using ChatGPT. Because that kind of helps with a like a copy cup level, not not a true copywriter won't replace a true copywriter, but somebody the basic copywriters it kind of replaces a lot of that. So you can look to outsource to either a vendor to a system or to to, to uh, you know somebody else in your team is kind of how we look at it. But that's that's the short answer, I guess a longer answer. But the short answer to recap it is if you have the muscle in your team and they've got the time for sure it's training no matter what. 
But if you don't have the muscle on your team to fill that role, you then have to look at it at another way to replace that. Again, sometimes it might be software that's coming in. You get some SaaS program that does that. Other times it'll be a vendor, depending upon the skill that you need. No, that's great. And let's say that team does have the time. They decide to sign up for the academy. What is maybe a quick syllabus of some of the topics that are, are covered in the um, measurement marketing academy that they would look forward to? Yeah, really good question. I think the thing for us is it relates to back to the conversation you and I were having around the jack of all trades thing. That helps you to become naturally good at strategy. And I'm I'm that same way. Like I'm good at a few of these measurement tools, don't get me wrong, but I'm kind of like that guy too. I have a wide variety of interests, but I am very good at strategy. In fact, I'm like that kid on the sixth sense where it's like, all I see is dead people, right? All I see are systems. Like I see systems everywhere, you know? So when I'm in working with ourselves, our students or with our clients, when they're coming in, right? They're trying to learn a new skill set. They're, they're coming in with a problem, number one. They're trying to figure out what's working and what's not in their marketing, right? They figure out that turn up the Facebook spend or turn it back down. They need to buy a program that's going to be able to help them to build muscle. So we built the academy for that. But the academy, I'll say the worst part about the academy is it's got everything you need. But I mean, it's got everything. And that's the problem. Because to your point, now you come in, you're like, where do I get started? Right? And so the way that we handle that is, is multifold. One, we always start with strategy. Because we believe strategy should dictate how you use the tools, not the other way around. A lot of people will start using a tool like Google Analytics because it's easy to use. You turn it on, you put code on your pages, it starts lighting up with all those interesting little numbers, and then you jump in trying to use them. But that's actually a huge error because that tool hasn't been set up yet. So it looks like it's working, but it's not. It's not actually set up to tell you a story, which is why it looks like gibberish back there for a lot of people, because they haven't learned the proper strategy that dictates how to use that tool. So in the academy, we will always start with strategy first. In fact, I think that is the most important course uh, that we have. It's called the Metro Marketing Framework. We go through that strategy. Then once you understand the strategy, then it's okay, let's use these tools. Start off something simple like with Google Analytics, get good at that. Then you add in other tools on top of that as, as your skills improve, right? You can add those. So the academy is there as you sort of make that journey up. But it always starts with strategy. I will say just kind of like a shameless plug for the academy, something that separates us out apart is I think information is going to be, is, is commodified. Let's face it. You can find this stuff on YouTube of how to install Google Analytics for. But what you don't have on YouTube is the support. You can't send somebody a video and say, Hey, I'm having a problem with my tech stack and here's what it looks like. And here's the issue I'm running into. reply to your comment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. So we have an entire ask an instructor support system. That's back there where the instructors are real live people who do this every day who are answering those questions in videos and screenshots. So they build relationships with them. But part of that process, there's also a curriculum request back there. So they will, you can send them a video and say, here's what, I'm, here's what my site is. Here's what I'm trying to do, blah, 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 blah. Here's what my skill set is. Here's what's currently set up. They will actually build your curriculum with the academy courses so that you can go through it step by step. And then they're right there with you if you have questions. You know, So we put a lot of the effort in the academy. Yes, the courses are substantial, but that's not what separates us out. I mean, it is this support that separates people out because I think that's the thing that people are going to run into, right? You're going to watch something on YouTube and you go, well, that's not quite what it looks like anymore because it happens all the time. It's hard to update, right? In fact, it's impossible to update a YouTube video right now because they it all goes back down to zero and nobody wants to update their old YouTube videos. So you're sort of forced to keep old content out there, but that's the idea. So come in with strategy first and ask, keep building support, ask for help. And that is one of the questions that I had for you. And it's, it's I don't ask every single interviewee this question, but I think there's certain times where it's appropriate, especially in this, and especially since you mentioned it, how do you stay updated in the academy with 
these different marketing channels that are, are, can just almost like happen overnight. You know, Twitter had like a complete and total change over the last like six months to a year. TikTok, it only took like two years. I mean, oh, this well, stuff so that's can change now, right? This, this, this stuff can change very quickly. How do you make sure that you are updating the academy correctly and promptly? enough. Yeah, that's that's a really great question. So part part of the way that and I'm a big believer in building systems. I talk about strategy, right? And I'm a big systems guy. I like building a system that automatically or better than average chance, let's say, will produce the result you want to produce just by you going through the activities of the system. So for example, we want to stay up with what's new, right? We keep stay up to date with the new stuff. So what we did is we built as part of the academy, we have this whole section called the on-demand workshop library. Once a month, in fact, it's always the first Wednesday of every month, the instructors get on a call and they have it, what they call the what's new workshop. And they go through all the change logs of all the different tech stuff that's going on and they catch everybody up. Now they're doing that as a, as a service for the students. But at the same time, what are they also doing? They're also, because they're teaching those changes, they had to already know those changes. They had to stay up to date already. So what we did just as, as a, you know, again, it, it's like a benefit because it's like one swing at bat and you get a, you know, two base hits is the idea is that the instructors have to stay up to date. But if I just said, Hey, stay up to date, what are the odds of that? But if I say, listen, you're going to produce a workshop every month. That's going to be for the students where you're going to tell them all the newest stuff. They have to stay up to date in order to do that. So I don't have to ask them to stay up to date anymore. They naturally stay up to date because we're teaching it all the time. And one of those things we teach is here's the latest stuff over the last nine or 30 days, you know? That well, and that process so that's, is that's collaborative. So one person's bringing 100%. something up that another didn't know, vice versa. And then that same exact process can happen with students. Honestly, I can imagine there's probably students who are even more up to date than in certain areas than some of the instructors of, hey, that's I heard around so, this thing 12 hours ago, you know? Yeah, that's so true. In fact, that happens. There's something we for this exact reason. Again, I, I build a product not just to help our students, but to help us, right? To your, to your point too. But we have a thing called the measurement mastermind, which is like weekly group coaching, right? That happens every Wednesday, that little group gets on there. So every week we start that with, here's what's changed over the last week. So that instructor who's going through and running those calls, they're definitely staying up to date because they're doing it each week. Other instructors are doing it once a month, but they're all communicating with each other. So they know what's coming up. And to your point, on that measurement mastermind call, sometimes we're not the best people in the room to answer certain questions because at a certain point, you can't. You can't just keep up with every single tech stack that exists in mankind. It's impossible. There's always, there's like 45 new A platforms that probably came out in the last hour of this podcast, right? So it's like, there's always new stuff coming out. So you rely on the community, on the peers, on the other people that are in the room. And so we'll have other students answer questions from other students, sometimes because they're better at it, right? Or it happens to relate maybe more to like technical SEO or something like that. And so, and we're not SEO people, but some of our students are. They have agencies that do that. So they're better able to answer that. So I think that's where that happens. But that's why I like building a system that automatically produces that result. Because two things. One, it's the system doing it. So as long as we keep teaching stuff, everyone keeps getting that result. And then everyone stays future-proof, right? Because that's, that's the hard part. Is stay, to your point, staying up to date. It's so hard to stay up to date on anything in the digital marketing world because it changes so fast. I mean, you mentioned all these social media platforms. Remember Clubhouse? That was a big thing for like a minute and a half. And then everybody put in infrastructure for that was a waste of time. So it's like, you know, where do you, where do you bet? You know, where do you put your chips on the table? And that's where it's like, no one knows. So we're all sort of going through this journey, you know, in our own little like D and D adventure together through this world of marketing. And you got to just roll the dice and see what happens. Honestly, 100%. yeah, hundred percent. And there's something very interesting. I, I see it, at least in how, you know, measurement marketing is sold is that it's for 
all different types of people. And you even mentioned that different students have different skill sets. Some are really good about SEO. Some are really, really knowledgeable on social media. Some are just about to start a business. Some have been in e-commerce for years, maybe even decades. So I'm curious how you tailor the academy to both newer entrepreneurs and seasoned veterans who might be looking for a leg up. Is that just merely trying to meet people where they're at or what does that kind of look like? Yeah, it's a combination. Another good question. So always, always, always start with strategy because that is the common language that ties all the tools together, right? So we owe, everybody has to go through the strategy. If you're not using that strategy, you're going to misuse the tools, right? Because again, strategy should dictate your tools. So once everybody goes through the strategy, then to your point, some are more on the technical, maybe implementation side, because that's their role in the company. So they will have to learn how to set up, let's say, Google Analytics 4, and then maybe the basics of using Google Analytics 4. But maybe somebody else in that organization, their particular role, maybe they're the strategy side of things. So do they really need to learn how to set up Google Analytics 4? Probably not. But they do need to understand that it has to be set up, right? They need to know that that's a thing. And so that's where the strategy courses that talk about how to use Google Analytics for, it'll mention that, hey, make sure it's been set up. If that's not you, make sure somebody in your company did do that. But you as a strategist should now do that. Because if the strategist doesn't know what the tools are capable of, they won't know to ask, right? And if the implementer doesn't know the strategy, even though if the tool can do something, they won't know to do it. And so that's why you need those two sides connected. Sometimes that's the same person, right? Especially in the beginning, if you're a freelancer, you're going to do the strategy and maybe just Google Analytics for, but you don't have time for tag manager and everything else. Fine. You don't need to. The courses are lifetime. So come back to it when you need them and you can grow it. You can take those skills later, you know? But I, I, I believe, especially in the strategy course, which is the, again, the best course I would ever give to tell anybody to take if I had to choose one, it's that one. It's the framework course. Because the first thing, it'll teach you the strategy, but it also teaches you the levels. And the first level to learn how to use that strategy is to keep things simple. We call it getting out of the cave. And you have to learn that skill of simplicity because as marketers, it's really easy to complicate things. I mean, look at somebody's uh, WordPress site. They're like, oh, we're on WordPress. And I'm like, well, you're kind of on WordPress, but there's also unbounced lead pages, click funnels, deadline funnels, and a Shopify store embedded in all of that mess. So no, you're not just a WordPress site, right? The, the tech source that can get really complicated. That makes it really hard to measure. If you keep things simple, it makes it easier to measure, you know? So in the strategy course, we teach that skill set as well. Because that was your first foray, right? I mean, WordPress is, is your forte, if I recall correctly, right? That was the first company yeah, that, was that kind of the, led to this. That was the origin story of before. Yeah, I mentioned we were done for you agencies, which was true. But before that, the way we got into being done for you was WordPress. I was teaching WordPress training on a membership site, kind of like we do with Measurement now. Uh, but I was teaching WordPress and that led to people saying, hey, this is a great, but could you just build my WordPress site? So I, I'm a freelancer at that point. I'm a single person, right? Doing my own thing. Just get these cool courses, a company of one going, okay, well, let's figure this out. So I learned how to do outsourcing and buy some outsourcing courses. And we built a little mini company. All of a sudden we were building WordPress sites. So what our thinking was is, okay, well, let's differentiate ourselves. So we'll build you the WordPress site and we will optimize it. So, cause that was new back, believe it or not, this is an early, you know, 2010, 20. 2008, something like that. In the US, conversion rate optimization hadn't really hit its stride yet, but it was in Europe everywhere. And I think it's mostly because the US was so big that Europe ran out of traffic faster. So they had to optimize it faster. And we just had 300 million people to get through. So it took us a while, you know, to be like, okay, now we got to optimize. But we started optimizing. Well, in order to optimize, you've got to measure. And this is where the difference was for us. And this is what really, this is a little bit of luck for sure. Like I think when you look back at anyone's story, don't believe them if they say it's all skill because it's not. There's a substantial amount of luck to every journey. But 
in my case, my background was sales management throughout history of, of work. It's always been sales management. So I think of things of measuring a salesperson through the pipeline. And I'm always used to doing that. I'm, I think, very pipeline-oriented, right? How many phone calls do you have to dial in order to get so many people on the phone, in order to get so many appointments set, in order to make so many pitches, that sort of thing, and, and measuring that stuff out. So when we came into that conversion rate optimization and we were starting to set up Google Analytics for people, I set it up like a sales manager would, not like a marketer would. And that was the difference. When I set it up like that, it made more sense to people. And when, I, when we delivered the sites, the WordPress sites with the Google Analytics installations at that point, that's what changed for us. That's why we moved into measurement. Because all of a sudden, again, it goes back to that, you have to listen to your market because your market will tell you what to do if you listen. But in our case, we started getting referrals. The referrals weren't anymore, hey, I need a WordPress site, which is what they used to be. It was, hey, was it Joe Polish's mastermind? And some guy was showing me how you were doing, da, 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 da. Could you do that for our Google Analytics? And I went, there's a pivot. Because no one, this tool had been out for 10 years at that point. But no one had learned to set it up in a way where it was easy to use and simple to understand how to get action out of it. And that's what we were doing that was different. We were, we were just setting up in a slightly different way, but it seemed to unlock a lot of the power. So we started doing just done-for-you setups, and we stopped doing WordPress stuff. And then, as we said earlier, then we eventually created the training programs out of all of that expertise that we learned doing all those done-for-you setups. Power back to the people so they could learn how to do it themselves. You know, I think there's something very valuable there. I wanted to ask you a question with, with your sales acumen and experience. I have a, a really good friend who's one of the best salesmen that I've, I've ever met. But he's from the farming community, and he's asserted that sales and the value and the quality of a salesman is extremely difficult to quantify because it is not totally about the close or the sale. It is on paper, but a lot of times you could look on paper at a salesman who isn't closing anything, and he could be more valuable than the one who seems like he's closing all this stuff because the other one's fostering and creating these long-term relationships that then create these massive sales down the road. So you could have a salesman who for six months hasn't closed a single sale, but is out there creating and managing all these wonderful relationships. Is that accurate? Is that your experience? And am I maybe oversimplifying it? I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And I think the answer is it can be like that because, and this, this goes back to that marketers ask all the time about attribution because they're, they're chasing that elusive question, right? Of like, what's half of my advertising is working? I'm, you know, I'm not sure which half. It's like, you know, John Warner make a quote from 100 years ago. No one has ever solved that question. And humans are pretty freaking smart. If there was an answer to a question as simple as that, I promise you, somebody would have figured it out. There is no answer to that question. It's a question people should just stop asking, but they don't do that, right? And yet you go to, you talk to a salesperson. And this is why I'm like, attribution makes no sense to keep asking. It's how you measure should automatically answer that. And I'm going to relate it to sales, tie back to your question. And I think this is why I think like this, because it's the same thing that he's thinking which is he's right. Like if I'm a sales manager, I've got 10 salespeople, right? And I've got all of their different measurements being measured. So I can, I know, let's just keep it as simple. Like you have to pick up a phone to dial. You've got to get somebody to make an appointment. You have to then make sure they show up for that appointment. You then have to pitch, they have to close, and then you have to collect. I will measure all of those different steps, right? And I'm going to measure those for all of those salespeople because your friend might be amazing at getting people on the phone. He's just really good at getting them on the phone, getting through the gatekeepers. And maybe that's his skill. So somebody else might be an incredible closer, but they are horrible at getting people on the phone. So what I do as a sales manager is I'm taking a little bit of peanut butter and a little bit of their chocolate, mixing them together, 
right? Saying, okay, what do you do that's so good? What are the tactics that you have to get people on the phone? How do you get through the gatekeepers? Oh, I use this, I use this, I use this. Cool. Let's teach that to the other person. Now, the other person is a really good closer. What's she doing? And can we go through her systems and say, okay, well, oh, she's she's setting them up. Oh, you see what she's doing? She does know how to close. Maybe you could try some of her techniques. Now, the person who's really good at getting them on the phone just got a little bit better at closing. Person's closing, got a little bit better at getting more people on the phone. Sales net, net go up higher, right? So, but there is a natural tendency for a salesperson to be stronger in a certain area. It just doesn't have to be that they stay there. That's where the sales management and the training comes in. So let's, so that's how a sales manager would think. Let's look at it from a marketing perspective. Same exact system, except now it's, they have to load the offer page. They have to scroll down the offer, read the copy, look at the pricing table for four seconds, click on the button to go to the cart, fill in the information on the cart to collect payment, and then go to the thank you page. Now that's our, our sales steps, right? So we measure for all of those different steps, which is not hard to do when you learn how to do it. So we measure for all of those different steps. So we know that a Facebook person coming in through Facebook, how they go through that funnel. We know how a Google ads person goes through it. We know how an email person goes through it. And just like different salespeople, they will have different personalities. So then we can start to understand down to the ad level, if we were like in a Facebook, for example, down to the email, which specific email of an email campaign. And we can see the differences. So we can say, well, there's, you know, let's say there's 14 different ads we're running. We can say, okay, three are really knocking it out of the park. These other three are horrible. Everyone else is in the middle. Okay, let's go look at the top three. Let's look at those and see what are they doing that's very specific that we can teach maybe the bottom to help level that up so that the whole team starts doing it. And the same thing with emails. I got the seven email series and the autoresponder series. What this third and fourth email are really doing a good job. The other one's not so much. Okay, let's see what the third and fourth one looks like. And maybe that's what we can take to addressing, maybe give some of that power to the other two. And, and sometimes when you when you do that, when measurement is sort of what's causing you to ask those questions, you more easily see those challenges. You see those problems. And when you see the problem, you almost can't help but see the solution right next to it. But it's a matter of some people just don't realize that that's a problem they see. They start asking questions about multi-touch attribution and you know, on the channel. And well, I'm doing paid media and I'm doing ads and I'm doing a newspaper ad. I don't know what's causing the deal. You know, It's like because of how you're measuring it. You're never going to know that. But when you measure it properly, you stop asking that question because you already know the answer. You know how things work. So that's sort of how we think about it. And one of those things that you, I don't want to say missed or skipped over, but there's another factor in there that is even more attentive or important nowadays than was, we'll say, 15 years ago. And that's comparison. The, the ability to look at someone's offer and then immediately open a new tab and compare it to someone else. Where does that kind of come in in that process? Is that a continual thing? Is that something that you account for? Is that something that can be measured? I mean, how much does that play as a factor? Yeah, great question. It's built into the measurement strategy for us. So we call it forecasting, right? We call it forecasting. But the idea is exactly that. You're, you're basically saying instead of like, what happened to all the money we spent on paid ads last week, right? And which is what most marketers are asking. What happened last week to all that money we spent? What we do is we say, what's going to happen to the money we're going to spend next? And then we have a forecast of how the marketing is supposed to happen, how the things are supposed to work down to the percentages, right? So I can tell you, for example, like of everybody that loads the page, I know about 90% should stick around 10 seconds. If it's lower than that, I have a problem. If it's higher than that, I probably, you know, I might not have a problem, but it's probably not going to be much higher than that. You sort of have some attrition. So it's about 90%. Of those, about 50 to 60 will, if it's a long form copy, are going to scroll down to the middle and really start investigating and, and, and be showing interest in that copy messaging. And then of those, by the time it's all said and done, let's say 8 to 12% make it to the cart. So I start to see sort of a breakdown of how 
the pipeline is supposed to be working on that page and I'm measuring against that forecast, right? So that's that's kind of the idea. And then what we're doing is if we have three or four different offers that are all being measured that way, they all have their forecasts, but one of them is doing really well and it's it's making the it's hitting its forecast. Maybe the other the other one's not. That is where you can do your back-to-back comparison and say, well, listen, they're both getting Facebook traffic. Why is one doing better than the other? And you're like, well, let's run. Oh, maybe one's using words that, and I've seen this a lot with, with our copyright. We've done this as an experiment with our copyright, which has worked out great, um, which is when they write, they write very complicated words because they're writing, right? It's like writing feels like formal. And so they accidentally write these words. So what we did is we noticed this. It was one of these comparison things. We noticed there was a much simpler copy. And we did this at the ad club. One of these ads had very simple copy. The other ad had more complicated syllables, right? It was like longer words for the same thing. They were just bigger words. So what I did is I started having him read the copy out loud as opposed to writing it. So he would write it, but then he would read it. As he was reading it, he would real, he would hear now the complicated word and go like, wait, I'm never going to say that word in real life. So he would simplify the copy. That technique came from measurement because we measured, we saw that, that comparison and went, oh, okay, well, simple sells, right? That's a cliche, but it's true. So it's like, let's, how do we make it simpler? Let's come up with a tactic to help our copywriting team make simpler copy that's more likely to sell and move the needle. And that's how, that's just one example of how we did that to your point using that comparisons. But it's because we had the initial idea first of how it was supposed to work. Exactly. That forecast, that projection. I read that the best copy, it should be written at like a fifth grade reading level or, or something like that. I think like even that. third grade nowadays, but yeah, exactly right. You know, get, get it something that a kid can though, understand. Yeah. Because you want to be valuable and and kind of prestige, I think is the word that kind of gets thrown around, at least in, in TV circles. Yeah, no, I think you're really touching on something very important. Now, you know, you offer this academy and all these tools, I think I read for about a $20,000 value at like really a $2,000 price tag, something, something to that effect. But you also offer a free membership toolbox, right? Can you kind of expound on that a little bit? Yeah. So the the toolbox itself, it is that strategy course. So no matter what, even if you're not interested in buying the academy, it doesn't matter. Get that strategy course because that's going to help you. So that's what the toolbox is. It'll cover the measure marketing framework. Give or take, it's about three and a half hours. It's a substantial course. All of our courses are like that. Some of them are are larger, but that one's about three and a half hours. It's going to take some time to go through, but it will be so worth it because it's going to help you think about measurement in a completely different way. So you have that course, but the reason we call it the toolbox is because we also unlock the members toolbox for those, uh, even the free members as well. So it's got a bunch of proprietary tools that we've built for our members and other tools that we use back there and recommend. Uh, Right now it's about 40 different tools, but there's ones back to like, Traffic tracking toolkit for how to track your traffic. There's one for building dashboards and how to make a you know really good dashboard template. There's one for if you do a lot of split test uh, optimiz- optimizing or conversion rate optimization, a way to sort of measure and track all of that. There's all sorts of stuff based on different tools for how to set up anything from a beginner's guide on setting up Google Analytics for to using BigQuery for for companies that are moving into creating data lakes and warehouses and all the other fun stuff that. A lot of marketers have no ideas coming their way in a few short years. So we're trying to keep things ahead. We wanted to make a resource that everybody could kind of, you know, essentially buy once to get access to the courses and then continue to purchase if they want access to all of the support and the the personal contact. But even if they didn't keep that, they at least have these resources that we're constantly improving. You know, as as best we can, you know, given given the nature of how fast things change, because um, sometimes it does feel like an uphill battle. But that's that's what we do the toolbox membership for. And honestly, it obviously from a marketing standpoint gives somebody a, a way in 
to the academy so they can see what's back there with just having access to certain parts. But if there are, there are very, very valuable parts. So that's where I would. Uh, yeah. And once these businesses implement these tools and operations strategies and they work, then they'll see that it probably behooves to pay for even better and more, you know, that's the idea, right? You, you, you get an appetizer, you start realizing, Oh, it's a pretty good restaurant. Maybe they, I want to go ahead and get a meal too. You know, so that is part of the, that's absolutely right. I got a little looser questions for you here. Now, during my research, Mercer, I noticed that you had an FAQ section like every website does. But what I found very interesting was a question that asked, how do I get my boss to approve this academy as an expense? Right. And I didn't think of that question, but it made a lot of sense. And it was one of the only times I'd seen that on a similar service, you know, like, like an academy or a class that either way, um, the response to the question was an actual email, like response template that you wrote out that a person could easily like copy, change the boss's name and send. And I thought that this was kind of a uh, clever. I hadn't seen that really anywhere. My question to you is, have people used that? Have, have people used this email template that you gave them and gotten a, a, a write-off with your academy? I'm curious. That's a very, very good question because the, the short answer is I honestly do not know. But that is because we just put that on there. I kid you not. It's been like maybe four or five days that that's oh, there, really? that particular question. Yeah, it was. it's really new. But it goes back again to listening to your market because guess what? We kept getting people saying, hey, how do I get my boss to pay for this? And they were emailing support saying, I just, I'm just not sure what to do. And we, we realized there is an audience on this page of people who are the students, but they are not the buyers and opposite. They are the buyers, but they're not the students. So if I'm communicating to a buyer, I got to sell them in one way. If I'm communicating to a student, I got to communicate in a different way, right? So the student needs to hear about all the different courses they're going to learn. The buyer just wants to know that they're going to be taken care of. The students can be taken care of. They don't really care about all the details because they don't care. They're just trying to buy it. So that's why we created that question to help hopefully bridge that gap a little bit. And at the same time, there's a lot of people who aren't comfortable selling, right? Even if they're a marketer, they don't want to have to sell their boss and why they need to learn this. So it's easier to give something that we think is a good enough approach and we'll see how it works, right? And we'll we'll do surveys, I'm sure, and ask like, hey, is I'm going to use this? And what do you think about this? Or has anybody else used a different approach that they liked better? And then if we find that, like we have this community support called the Winter Circle, right? So it said we have oodles of support. One of the support systems is a community support. So back there is where the community is. So if we find somebody else that's saying, hey, here's how I get my boss to pay for stuff, we'll take some of that and then move it into that FAQ question, you know, so that so that the community helps build the community essentially. But that's why that exists because we got those questions sent into support. We're like, well, if they're if they're taking the time to email us, there's probably somebody who didn't take, but it had that question, right? So let's put it on the FAQs because it. It does make sense. And we're not the only ones that can claim, you know, that question I've seen in other places, especially on um, companies that are going more B2B, where they're advertising to a, a larger organization. And it's like, they don't, these, you know, a team member typically doesn't control the credit card, but like the CFO does, right? Or their, their manager does. And that's who they're trying to get the bonus or get the budget approved from. Or even they pay for it themselves and then they have to try to write it off or get reimbursed. Exactly. But I, I, you know, I hadn't seen anything like that. I thought it was pretty clever. And I I think there is something extremely valuable to speaking to a buyer through a client or a seller in in that position. I hope you're right, Alex, because that's exactly why we did it. So I'm hoping, I'm glad you caught it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's funny. It's only been up there for four or five days. There's also another part of your website where you mention that you are a speed reader. I've heard about speed reading. I am the opposite of a speed reader. I am a person who usually has to read a line multiple times because I appreciate, you know, comprehension. And so my question to you, Mercer, is is what sort of value does speed reading have 
And can you give me and or our audience a quick crash course on it? I love this topic. Yes. Um, I, I was taught speed reading when I was in like the early days of college. Even after college, I was teaching speed, speed reading to people. So it's been a long, long time. But one of the things you learn is your brain processes information differently than what sometimes we think it does. So when you're reading, a lot of times you're sub-vocalizing. So you're literally, when you're reading, you're hearing a voice inside your head say the words on the page for a lot of people, right? So that's that's sub-vocalization. So at that point, you can only read as fast as you can speak. So you're going to be limited by your sub-vocalization pattern at that point, right? Which is why people in the North, like I'm from the North, I speak fast. People in the North speak fast. We speak upwards of 300 to 400 words a minute, right? Depending on where you are in the area. Down South, when you move in the South, like I'm from Austin, I live in Austin now, down South, a little slower talker, right? 250 to 350 words a minute. And it's because they speak slower. So they read slower because they're sub-vocalizing slower. But it's not because they have to read slower. It's because they're sub-vocalizing slower. So what you do for speed reading, the whole concept behind it is you get the information into the brain faster so that it's coming in so fast, it doesn't have time to sub-vocalize. It just has to know it. And that feels like a weird thing to say as much as I can imagine somebody listening to this, even you going, how do you just know it? But that is exactly what it feels like. When you when you you cross a line at a certain point when you're speed reading, where the subvocalization gets faster and faster and faster. And then at a certain point, you just hear bigger main words of a sentence, but you're not hearing the thes and the eyes and the buts and all that stuff, but you hear the main words of a sentence. And at a certain point, it kind of feels like it went silent. And then you're like, oh, I didn't understand any of this. And then you go back because you think you're mind wandering. But in reality, you weren't, you were hearing silence, not another thought. You weren't thinking another thought. You just weren't subvocalizing. You were in that copy. So when you read those words again to go back and double check, you're like, oh my God, I actually know, I know all of this because you do comp, you can comprehend. Your brain can do that. That's why, like, if you listen to a video twice as fast, right? Everyone's getting used to that, you know, type of thing. You, you pick up on stuff. You can, and that's why dyslexic. They were some of my favorite, one of my favorite stories ever was teaching a mom and daughter who were both dyslexic how to speed read because they can get it through easier because the words are already scrambled. So they're already used to that. That's actually an advantage in speed reading for them because they're already used to. But in reality, you don't. You don't even need to see the. Just need to get the they can, general they can idea extrapolate of what the, word is. the concept quicker. Exactly, yeah. the brain will pull it out, and it knows what the word is, and it doesn't know. It doesn't mean if it was spelled right. Now all of a sudden, it's the wrong word. It knows what the word is, and it'll naturally give comprehension. It's a, it's a skill. You take different, you know, different um, trainings to do it. But anybody can YouTube that stuff and learn that. I think Jim Quick's a really good guy that's done a ton of stuff with this um, that you can go. Good look at, but yeah, it's that's it. How it reminds works. me yeah. of this theory, and I was talking to my cousin about this a while ago. I want to say it was maybe a year ago, and how ten percent, maybe something like that, ten to twenty, uh, ten to fifteen percent of the population doesn't have an inner monologue, where essentially they think in word maps. Where you know, when 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 I'm going throughout my day, I have an inner log of of you know my voice or my inner monologue's voice that is saying, okay, I have to wash the dishes. Then I have to unload the dishwasher. I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner, and and it's all like this voice kind of mapping out what my thoughts are. But about ten percent of the population thinks in these maps and concepts that are kind of just like you know thing or this thing. And, and what you're explaining to speed, to my knowledge, and, and what I'm hearing you say, Mercer, is that the concept of speed re reading is turning your inner monologue into that other style of kind of like word bubble clouds of these concepts that you're kind of taking the sentence and putting it into these boxes a little bit, you know? And, and I can imagine that you may have changed your entire way of thinking 
upon learning how to speed read. Well, because you can get access to more information faster, right? Like I think at my peak, I was doing a little over 2000 words a minute, which certainly isn't the fastest that I've, that I've ever been or that others have been, right? So, yeah. but it's fast. Yeah. Like even a thousand words a minute is fast, which is probably close to where I'm at now, but that's only because I haven't practiced in forever, right? So, and now I listen to audiobooks all the time. So it's like, you know, so now it's like in a weird way, you're sort of, I'm listening to audio when I read, it's an audio book and I'm listening to it at three times the speed though. You know, because I know I don't have to catch my brains used to just gathering the main concepts. It's with all things. The when you look at the strategies of how the brain works, you realize like, oh, speed reading is just this archaic way of phonics. When we, when we learn phonics, which is a great way to learn how to read, it's just not a how to learn to read faster method. You have to then let go of the training wheels, which is hooked on phonics. That's important, right? Hooked on phonics worked for you. Remember that commercial way back in the day? Like that was that was great, and yet it was training wheels to learn how to read. But once you learn how to read, you don't just keep using the same training wheels. You get a better bike now that you know how to read. You switch your tool. So that tool now could be speed reading. You're learning a different way. You know, and that's that's how it is. So you evolve your tools to get better results. And going over my reading with my son is he can do sight words pretty well. Like if you show him the word cat, he knows that says cat, not because he's reading the word cat, but because he knows he's not sounding that it out. those symbols yeah. represent the word cat. And so... I'm convinced since he's now becoming obsessed with Pokemon that he will be able to learn to read better because a lot of those Pokemon names aren't words that you can just kind of like forces them to write, you know, is that he has to actually sit there and sound out the syllables. I love that. And he's internally motivated now because he wants to know about whatever the Pokemon character is. I love that. That's exactly right. And what a great way to teach too. Versus just kind of holding one up and saying like, what's, you know, what's his name? It's kind of like, I'll tell you one time and he's got a great memory. So I got to probably stop doing that too, but have to like, you know, look at each letter and figure it out a little bit because it's so unconventional. I, I think he can he can read because he knows what the words look like. I don't know. That was just kind of like modern day hooked on phonics a little bit to me. It is. It is. It's exactly right. But it ties into his inner motivation. Yeah. It's like, oh, now I have to learn to do this because I'm at a level where this is necessary for me to learn as a tool because otherwise I can't play Pokemon. Yeah. You know, I can always look at cat pictures and that's it. <laughs> uh, and that that's awesome. I love that. It is. What a, what a great way to be able to tie into like a, a real world skill into something that is naturally wants to move them forward. Like I think one of the, Worst things that I had happen to me, and it's, it wasn't horrible, but but just like in school when I'm like taking algebra two or something, and I remember talking to the math teacher, being like, "This is me of all people. I teach numbers now for a living. It's kind of funny, right? I talk about irony." But I was going to him, going, "I don't get this math stuff. Like, this is ridiculous. We don't need this." And he did not have an answer. He was like, "Yeah, you just have to go through it." He says a lot of teachers say, but he couldn't tie it into something that at all made sense in the world. And because there wasn't that, I was I started checking out. You know, and at a certain point, I'm going to, I'm going to do the middle and to get through the basics, but why put in the effort? Cause I'm not going to get a payoff from it. Right. But if I realized back then, Hey, these numbers, you can use them to figure out trends and patterns and you can use those trends and patterns to control the future. If nothing else to predict the future, right. Which will help you change your present activities, which very real does control your future because you can do that now. All of a sudden numbers take on a new meaning. And I'm like, Oh, and it, as it turns out, fortunately enough, that's very simple to do. You just need basic math skills. So that's what we teach. I just keep it all basic math. I and mean, I didn't learn the new stuff. But I love it with your son being able to teach him something that he naturally wants to learn. And like, oh, now we're going to learn some new skills. So you can. I think that's fantastic. It's a good example. Really good example. Thank you. And I was a math major in college. And everyone who oh, th- thought I was a three-headed monster because they never understood the real world application of it. They think that it's like 
you know, business, you work in a business, you need to understand your own taxes and yada, yada, yada. Everyone can understand the real world application of everything but math because they think that they don't use math all the time. But now evaluating it and looking back on it, you you touch on, you know, trends and predicting the future extremely well. I've been able to help people comprehend it in a matter of with most things in life, from my understanding, there's one solution, but there's 20 different ways to get there. And that's what kind of math helped teach me how to do is, you know, Five is always the answer, but there's, you know, a bunch of different ways to get there. So I think that's kind of the real world application at the end of the day. Yeah. It's funny because we we teach in measurement, there's not one way to do things. There's multiple paths to the same solution, right? And you're going to have to learn different different paths. You're going to end up at the same spot, but it's how you get there. That's exactly right. And being flexible and being able to adjust that. And I probably learned it through math too. I'll tell you though, the thing that triggered it for me for math, just on a personal note, was imaginary numbers. When it oh, was yeah. like, I, I okay, wasn't a fan wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Why, why are we, aren't these all imaginary? Right. And I was like, aren't, can we make up this whole thing anyway? And, and they just had no good answer for that sort of student back then. But I remember imaginary numbers being, okay, I'm tapping out at this point. I'm like, why am I going down this rabbit hole? Since then, I have watched a few YouTube videos on Khan Academy trying to rekindle some of that spirit for my numbers to get into the more in-depth stuff. But Everything's made up. Every word was made up. That's why That's why Dr. Seuss was a genius is because he just kind of like leaned into the fact that all it. of these are made I up anyway. That. But my last question for you, Mercer, in the e-commerce space especially, I think that there can be a lot of stress. It's a very stress-inducing environment and it's extremely important to have work-life harmony you know, and, and good mental health hygiene. What are some of your hobbies and interests that you have outside of the e-commerce space to ensure that work-life harmony? Man, it's another good question. And I, I wish I would have a better answer to this, but I'm, I'm going to start with saying, I don't know that I'm the best example of that. I will say I will, like, I, I'm, I like going out, walking, you know, going to doing hiking, you know, staying out in nature sort of thing. I will take um, personal vacation breaks that are, that are very personal. Like I won't even go with the wife. It's just me in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, away from the internet for like a week. Oh, that's kind of nice. Just to just be you. by myself. Yeah. Just me. Because I want that disconnect to, because it, it'll take a couple of days for the voices in your head to quiet down, you know, and that chatter to stop. And then you've got a couple of days of peace and quiet. And then a couple of days of the chatter starting to come back up as you're ramping up to go back in the world. But that it's, I do believe in recovery. And so that goes to your work-life balance thing. Um, I think there are some times that things are just going to be necessarily out of balance, right? Sometimes when you're on vacation, you shouldn't be working. So it's more personal life. Sometimes you're in the middle of a launch and you've got to work a little extra because that's what's required. But I think overall, it's a matter of just the, the strategies to make sure that when the energy that you're putting out, you are taking time to recover that energy. You got to put something else to balance, not even balance. It's the recovery that matters the most. Like if you go to a gym, you can't work out 24 seven because your body will break. It's going to break because it never had time to recover because that's when the muscles built is in the recovery. It's the same thing when it comes to your brain, right? That's sort of stressing out when you get your best ideas, when you're in the shower. Why? Well, because you're not doing the work. It's in recovery mode and it was able to synthesize and, and stitch two neural networks together that it couldn't otherwise do when you were trying to make it happen because you were in control. You let it do its thing. The brain is amazing. when you And it goes back to the speed reading thing. If you let the brain do its thing and don't get in its way as far as how to do it, it will amaze you and it will serve you. But that takes a lot of practice and a lot of faith because it, you know, it's, it's hard to do to let go of that control. 
Yeah, it, it requires being present and kind of just like allowing the thing to be the thing. You know, it, it, it's that lack of control that is so difficult for people in general, not not just any this. And, and, I, and I think that's why you see things like meditation and everything else. It's all these successful life secrets are all just different paths to, to the same ultimate solution. Yes. Right. It's exactly different paths. Right. But they're all accomplishing the same thing, which is that recovery period. You know, allowing whatever you call it, it's that some people call it balance, some people call it recovery, some call it peace, right? Whatever the thing is, it's the same thing for the brain as far as it as it. No, that's great. That's wonderful, wonderful advice. I I think that's extremely mindful of you. Mercer, it's been an absolute blast. Thank you for coming by. Good luck with measurement marketing, my friend. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, I will say just on the closing note, so anybody that's interested in that free strategy course, that toolbox thing we talked about, so just measurementmarketing.io forward slash debutify. Uh, it'll take you right to that page so you can get that uh, course and the tools with it. Beautiful. Sign up for that. Thanks very much, Mercer. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. I'd like to thank my guest, Chris Mercer, for joining me on the show and come back on Tuesday when I talk with Dmitry Kustov, the founder of Regex SEO. As the internet marketing director at Regex, Dmitry works to help businesses big and small grow their online presence to increase market share and revenue. And again, Mercer's offering our listeners a free membership of Measurement Marketing's Measurement Toolbox, where you can get a suite of premium tools created and curated by the Measurement Marketing team. Visit measurementmarketing.io slash debutify for your free membership today. And for more information about Mercer, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. To learn more about Measurement Marketing, feel free to visit their website, measurementmarketing.io, or follow them on YouTube at measurementmarketing.io, or on Facebook at Measurement Marketing. That's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until then. 